so, so how does it feel to be the only person in the world who will probably make any money from KFED's music? <laughs> uh, put that way, I guess I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. You can't have the Pretender's first album. That's mine. I bought it. You did not. The catchphrases. Did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? And the wannabes. Sometimes I see you dance around the house in my underwear. Doesn't make me Madonna. Never will. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. Hey, it's Steve Spears, your host with TampaBay.com. And with me, the lovely Kathy Wass. Hello. And the uh, slightly surly but always friendly Sean Daly. Cricket, cricket. (laughs) Hi, Steve. Good to see you again. You look good. Thank you. (laughs) I I take that with sarcasm intended. Hey, this week we got an interview with the mad scientist himself. Thomas Dolby graces us with an interview in this week's show. I had a chance to talk to him last night. He called from Austin, Texas, where he's uh, touring the southern United States on his nationwide tour, and it was fantastic. Cool. Yes, and he'll be here when? December 17th at the State Theater in St. Petersburg. You going to go see him? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. You guys going to party backstage after I, that? I, Ooh, those uh, Dolby parties are supposed to be crazy. Nah, he's he's great. He's a fascinating guy who's got a very... You, actually, you were really, really excited about this. Uh, I interview. was. I've, I've, I've always been a big fan of Dolby's. Um, I always take offense when anybody calls him a one-hit wonder because he's certainly not. He's got a, a large catalog of very eclectic songs that I just love to listen to. I think it's a shame that he's known for, best known to so many people for She Blinded Me With yes, Science because exactly. I don't think that's uh, even a really... That makes you furious. Uh, I, 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 it's not a he very... He starts rep- to look like the Hulk when yeah. people say that. I Have look like the Hulk that? any day, but uh, it's not a good song. He kind of looks like rep- the thing today, though. <laughs> But really he'll always thing. be Chet to us. <laughs> My Chet you know haircut. what? Your Chet haircut's not really growing in. You're not exactly gonna... a Chia pet over there, are you? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Well, uh, anyway, without further ado, let's get to see what Thomas had to say, and uh, we'll be back afterwards to talk a little bit more. I have the coolest job in the world because today I get to talk to Thomas Dolby. How you doing, Thomas? I'm very well, Steve. Nice to talk to you. How's the uh, tour going? Well, we're still quite early in it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. Uh, other than getting sick, which happens, you know, in winter tours. Uh, Twelve guys sleeping on a tour bus. <laughs> but uh, overall, it's been really good. Um, it, it's great that uh, BT's audience, uh, although they're 
you know, a little bit different, a bit younger than mine. They intersect very strongly and have the same kind of um, sense about the music that I'm playing. So it's really nice to expose my music to a new uh, new audience. I read, uh, I think I read it on your blog that a few nights ago you, you had the the cold so bad that you basically just turned it into sort of you spinning music and letting the people dance. Well, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, I, I certainly, I spun out the instrumental sections and... Uh, Wherever possible, I avoided singing altogether. And then in certain places, I had to either sing an octave down or change the melody altogether, uh, which was an interesting experiment. Now, this tour started with just a few stops in California, and then did it get expanded to a nationwide tour? Yeah, yeah, we're heading across the south now and then to Florida and up the east coast. Right, we'll catch you here uh, on December 17th at the State Theater in St. Petersburg. What's the reaction from the audience to songs that you know that they haven't really heard maybe in as long as twenty years? Well, uh, I mean, my core audience absolutely love it, and they love the fact that I'm willing to sort of uh, lift up the tent and give them a peek inside. Uh, many of the songs I start with just nothing, and I sort of loop in one section at a time, starting with you know percussion or a line or a guitar part or whatever. And, and once I've got the groove going, I'll start my song over the top. So if it's a song that you've, you've known and lived with for 20 years, like Hyperactive or Shabani Mere Science or one of our submarines, um, it's a fascinating thing to see. And uh, you can see what I'm doing uh, projected behind me on a big video screen. So it's kind of like looking inside my head. Sometimes people accuse me of being old school because I only want to talk about the 80s and such. But, but with your choices in sound effect equipment, you are really old school. I mean, you even built some of your th- synthesizers yourself, I believe, with some, some rather odd equipment. Tell us how you got started tinkering with that uh, sort of technology. Well, you know, in the early 70s, it was very expensive to get into electronic music. Uh, you could do it if you're at uh, an art school or a university uh, music department. But for the average musician, synthesizers were really prohibitive. And so the first one that I ever had was actually built from a kit out of a magazine. And it was called a Transcendent 2000. Um, And then, you know, you you could actually link different boxes together. Uh, And this came in very handy because I didn't have a drummer. I used to use my finger to play the drums, and I'm not that in time, and it was laborious. So uh, one day I was actually out at at a nightclub. And I was watching these, this empty dance floor with these flashing red and green lights. And I thought, wow, that's just got to be positive and negative voltages being sequenced in time to the music. I had to use that to play my drums. So I bought myself one of these units and hooked it up to my kit synthesizer. And the next time you listen to the drums on the end of Chibinami of Science, you're actually listening to a disco lighting console. Did I read somewhere that She Blinded Me With Science isn't actually one of your favorite songs? Well, no, I mean, it's one of my fluffiest songs. Uh, I mean, I've always been a li- little bit schizophrenic in the, in the moods of my songs. Uh, a lot of my songs are very personal, intimate, atmospheric, uh, things like Screen Kiss or Budapest by Blimp 
or I love you goodbye. Uh, but then I also have this sort of wild exhibitionist side, you know, as in, in science or hyperactive. Uh, and um, I think it's it's okay for a musician to have different styles, you know. Novelists are allowed, with each book they write, to pick a different era of history and a different geographic location as a setting. And yet musicians are somehow expected to sort of stay true to kind, and I think that's very that's a shame. That's very true. Um, for our listeners outside of England, could you tell us, who is Magnus Pike, and how did you get him to help you with that song? <laughs> yeah, Magnus, Magnus Pike was kind of a TV scientist in England when I was growing up. Uh, he'd always go on the BBC, and, and you know, when there was some scientific topic, a uh, kid would call in and go, uh, you know, why does the moon go? Why does the moon affect the tides? And he goes, well, the moon revolves around the Earth, and he'd sort of do this whole spiel while, while wildly waving his arms around. And uh, he was sort of an inspiration for the song She Blinded Me of Science, as a bad professor type. Um, conversely, uh, when he came to the States after my video had been on MTV, people would walk up behind him on the street and yell out, Science! <laughs> and scare him out of his shoes. And uh, he didn't like this because he took himself actually very seriously as a scientist. And he always objected to the fact that over here people assumed he was some sort of two-bit actor that had gotten the part in the video. She blinded me with science! That song's also kind of been in the news recently because Kevin Fenderline sampled it, I, I assume without your permission, for one of his songs. Yeah, well, the sequence was that Mob Deep, uh, the rapper, had asked permission to take a string from Shibuya Science for a song called Got It Twisted. And um, I gave him permission to do that, and I'm credited as a writer on the song. But uh, I, I found out a few months ago that from a fan, actually, that K-Fed had sampled the Mob Deep tune and put a rap over the top of it. And he'd done that without asking permission. And it would have been fairly easy to find me. You know, there's a precedent for this these days. Um, but in fact, you know, listening to the song, had K-Fed asked me permission to use the sample, I probably would have said no, because I thought it was kind of horrible, uh, his <laughs> rap. And um, so I, I asked a lawyer what I had to do to stop him using it. And he said, uh, well, you need to send him a post and desist, uh, cease and desist letter. And the problem was I didn't have an address to send it to, so I had the bright idea of actually going on his MySpace page and applying to become a friend. <laughs> and about 24 hours later, I got a, 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 an email back from KFED saying, yo, dude, yo, dude, you're my friend. And so phase two was then to uh, uh, post the cease and desist letter on his MySpace page. Um, but I think there's some sort of weird filter on MySpace where, where if you post words above one syllable, they get filtered out. Um, <laughs> So I, so I read the thing, and it sort of went beep, 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 it, beep, 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 as, beep, beep, and, etc. And so it made no sense at all. Um, so we were, in fact, in, in, in able to get in contact with him through Britney's agents, ironically. And um, it so happened that, you know, we got the thing settled, and the news actually hit of the settlement on the same exact day as the news came out that he and Britney were getting a divorce. Unbelievable. So, so how does it feel to be the only person in the world who will probably make any money from KFED's music? <laughs> uh, put that way, I guess I feel pretty good. <laughs> you had mentioned uh, one of our submarines, and I know that's a fan favorite. I know um, every everyone I know is a big fan of that. That uh, song is actually about your uncle I, I had saw on your podcast. Yeah, that's right. And, and I recall from the 80s that it got a lot of play in Florida because of all the U.S. naval bases there. Um, who It was actually 
number one in the U.S. forces top ten uh, in about 1982, I think, 
the most important stuff to me was the, the quieter, more personal stuff. But the record companies kept putting the pressure on me to come up with, you know, she blinded me with geometry, she blinded me with dentistry, etc. <laughs> In other words, that they had this standard formula that they applied, and they assumed that I would want nothing better than to just milk it for all it's worth. And um, so I just felt at the beginning of the 90s that I needed a break from this at the very least. And I'd always been involved in technology in one way or another. And Silicon Valley was where technology happens, uh, where it originates. And so I decided to go there and try and influence the tech companies and get them to do a better job of integrating audio and music into the products. Tell us about a company that uh, everyone who owns a cell phone should really know a whole lot about, and that company is Beatnik. Yeah, well, I founded Beatnik in the middle of the 90s. Um, it was really my response to, you know, what was going on in Silicon Valley. I felt that the computer companies were too slow to recognize the power of music. And in fact, it was only really, you know, the end of the 90s and the beginning of this century that, that I think Apple got it right by combining software and hardware in, in, you know, iTunes and the iPod. And now the whole tech industry has stood up and taken note of that. Uh, but at the time, it was very hard to get them to pay attention. So I decided to form my own company and do something about it. So I formed Beatnik um, in the middle of the 90s. And while we had lots of snazzy licensing deals with people like Yahoo and Netscape and Sun and AOL, none of them really had any, any teeth or any revenue associated with them until we did a deal with Nokia at the end of the 90s. And uh, when Nokia licensed the Beatnik software, they used it to do polyphonic ringtones in their phones. And they put it in all their phones, and it's shipped to, I think, several hundred million Nokia units and most of the world's other leading phone manufacturers. Did I, did I read somewhere that you composed maybe up, upwards of 300 uh, ringtones yourself? At Beatnik, we had a small production team um, that composed many of the ringtones that actually got shipped as the defaults in the phones that contained Beatnik software. And eventually, as Beatnik's business grew, I went off into my own company called Retro Ringtones. And I was determined to make ringtones more interesting, so we had some very diverse things ranging from sci-fi B-movie sound effects to endangered species making calls. Now, what led you to set that aside and get back into music again here? And Well, when a business or a technology becomes mainstream, it loses some of its appeal to me. I'm really at my most alert when a technology is brand new and nobody really knows how to use it. That's when I can have the most fun with it. So, I mean, as Beatnik's business grew and matured, uh, it became for them, to, for them to just keep an eye on the bottom line. And a company in that state doesn't need me. In fact, they're better off without me because I just confuse people. I, you know, I'll go to an engineer and I go, yeah, but what if you did it this way and this way? And then he spends the next week not knowing whether to do what the boss says or to stick with the program. So when was it that you decided that you wanted to give it a shot and, and perform those tours out in uh, California? I really wanted to get back into music, and um, I, most of all, I wanted to get in front of an audience again and see where I'm at in 2006, um, you know, and, and who my core audience is, which of them had lasted the 15 years or so that I've been away. And um, I was pleased to find, really through the internet, news groups and forums and so on, that what people were in there discussing every day was, you know, interpreting lines of lyrics in the third verse of Airwaves or... or annotating chord sequences at the beginning of Budapest by Blimp. So clearly I had made a connection on, on quite a profound level back then for people to still be writing about it um, 15 years on. 
So I wanted to get back in front of that audience and reacquaint them and, and myself with the music that started it all out, uh, but to allow myself to update it in 21st century terms with new sounds and new styles and so on. Um, I felt that having done that, I could draw a line in the sand. So 2006 was really a recapitulation for me, and 2007 will be the year when I start to make some brand new music and move forward. What was the idea, or, or were those were the enthusiasm you saw from the shows... Were those the uh, what led you to want to create the live CD and DVD for uh, your called the Soul Inhabitant? Yeah, well, the live CD and DVD sort of fell out of the uh, the touring I've been doing this year with the Soul Inhabitant tour. Seemed like a natural thing to do. I I work with a live VJ in my shows, um, putting together a live mix on a big screen behind me, a mixture of security cams dotted around my uh, gear with some found footage and bits and pieces of clips from my old videos. So we had the cameras there, and we were able to record a little bit every night and amass an amount of material from the live performances. And I just sort of felt like for the people that couldn't come and see me in these small clubs and theaters, uh, it would make sense to offer a CD and DVD uh, so that we could at least take a snapshot of this show as it stands at this point in time. Now, you have a large catalog of songs to choose from. How did you go about deciding which ones to include on the uh, CD and DVD? Oh, I just picked my favorites. You know, I picked the ones that I felt most strongly about. In fact, from when I first envisioned the whole Soul Inhabitant tour, the strongest image in my head was me up there playing Leipzig is Calling You, which is one of the very first songs I ever wrote and one of the ones that I used to do in my one-man show back in the late 70s. The trains fell in after that I sort of start with some of the darker more mysterious songs and it, it gradually gets more cheerful throughout the set and I finish out with some outright dance numbers where I'm, I'm just sort of jamming on a groove and um, the audience has a great time with that I, I was listening to the CD the other day and I think um, the, the first moment where it starts to, to lighten up a little bit is, is on one of my favorite songs I live in a suitcase uh-huh. and uh, I was listening to your podcast um, the other day where you were explaining the uh, genesis of that song, you know, when you had first moved to L.A. And it was a, it's a lovely story. Yeah, um, you know, initially when I moved to Los Angeles from the U.K., I was going to go for a year. I took a one-year lease on a house up in the Hollywood Hills. And um, I thought I'd just see what it was there and then head back to the U.K. Um, and about three days into it, I was feeling very jet-lagged and starting to wonder whether this had been a good idea at all. And at about three o'clock in the morning, I couldn't sleep and I went up to Griffith Observatory and I was sitting there staring out over the city of LA, trying to figure out how to get back to England. And suddenly there was a power outage and about half of the city went black. And at that moment, I could see beyond the city to the mountains and the desert and the stars were just coming out. And it was really beautiful and this melody popped into my head. Uh, the, the guitar uh, motif from I Live in a Suitcase. But it only got its lyrics uh, a few months later when I met the lovely Kathleen Bella and uh, 
I fell in love with her and stayed in, in LA. That was 18 years ago, and I've been in the US ever since. I always wanted to know, with your type of music, what are the challenges of performing it live, especially when you're trying to record it for a CD and a DVD? You know, I wasn't conscious of the filming or the recording when I was doing those. Um, we recorded and filmed several performances, and I just picked the ones that, that made the most sense. Um, the CD actually came from two consecutive nights at um, Office Club in Chicago. And so the sound was fairly consistent between the two nights, and I was doing the songs in the same way. So I was able to really edit the best bits from both nights, the best vocals and so on. As far as the filming, we had originally planned to actually video video from Martha's as well. But uh, later in the year, uh, actually in September, uh, I played a performance at the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. And they asked if they could videotape it because they also teach you know video production there. When I looked at this this uh, luscious four-camera shoot that they've done, I thought, wow, this is actually, you know, rather more high quality than the, the little sort of low-end cameras we've been using to film the show. So I thought, well, maybe it'd be rather nice actually to have a different performance on the DVD than there was on the CD. And then maybe people would like to buy both <laughs> and compare them. So uh, that, was the, that was the way that we went uh, with the CD and DVD. Your music is, is really complex, but your videos that... Uh aired back on MTV back in the day, they were even more, seemed even more complex. Did you feel, uh, were the videos harder to conceive at times than the songs themselves? Well, in some cases, I mean, in the case of Shablani Me Science, I actually conceived the video and the song at the same time. Um, I just got the green light from my then record company, EMI, to make a music video myself. Um, you know, I, I'd done a couple before then, but I was very interested in writing and directing myself. So they said, well, any, anything you can shoot in a day uh, with a budget of £10,000, you can do. So I actually had that in mind when I wrote that song. And um, I was thinking about the visuals, you know, as I composed the music. I think I also read somewhere that you said that sometimes you actually conceive of the song's title first, and then it builds from that. Was that the case with Europa and the Pirate Twins? Well, I was, uh, the Pirate Twins was the name of a kid's book that I was brought up on, so it just had a very sentimental place in my heart. And um, Europa, you know, just seemed like a good title for me um, because of the, the Europe connotation and also the astronomical connotation. It's one of the moons of Jupiter. And um, so Europa and the Pirate Twins, it came to be. And, and uh, I, I guess the, the final ingredient really was uh, um, one of my first girlfriends, uh, who was French, and um, we we weren't able to be together for very long. But we fantasized that after the uh, after the apocalypse, after the world, uh, you know, had gone up in flames, we would meet on a beach uh, in the east coast of England, and we'd be the Pirate Twins again. So that was the genesis of that song.
that's that's my all-time favorite uh, song. I, it's a perfect love song for the '80s. Um, you mentioned after the tour you were going to start some new material. What do you have in mind? Well, I've been writing a few songs, you know, over the years. Uh, I tend to write just while I'm in the shower or while I'm driving my car or just in my head. I, I don't tend to sit down at the keyboard and write. Um, and you know, as, as you mentioned before, very often the, the title is the first thing that pops into my head. And so it's like starting with a blank canvas, and I, I just let I let the song write itself, really. Um, very often the bulk of it is done very quickly, in, in, you know, an hour or two. And then I'll spend the next few days or weeks sort of filling in the blanks. And um, sometimes it's a bit like a crossword puzzle, you know, because I'll, I'll jot down a few lyrics that I have, and then if I know what the rhyming scheme is, I go, okay, well, this is the second line of verse two, so the fourth line is going to rhyme with that, and then the fifth line logically will follow on from that, and... And so I sort of, it ends up being pieced together like a patchwork. Are you uh, introducing any of the new songs uh, on tour? I've actually, um, in the last few nights, I've just started playing a song that is, is not completely new, but it's one that people haven't heard before. Um, it's called Your Karma Hit My Dogma, <laughs> which was actually a phrase that I saw on a bumper sticker when I was stuck in a traffic jam uh, in, I think, in Carpeteria uh, in the early 90s. And I never finished the song, but the, the recent K-Fed incident uh, and, and getting in, in touch with lawyers and things sort of reminded me of it. And um, so I decided to finish the song. I've been playing it on tour. That's a great story. Well, the, the CD and the DVD are called The Soul Inhabitant. They're available at thomasdolby.com, iTunes, and cdbaby.com. And you're playing December 17th here at the State Theater in St. Petersburg. We can't wait to see you. Well, I look forward to meeting you guys. Hi, this is David Pagano from Queens, New York, and I just wanted to mention the fact that at the tender age of three, I was hooked to a machine. Uh, not to keep my mouth from spouting junk, but because even then it was apparent that I would forever be stuck in the 80s. So there we go, that was it. Did you guys enjoy it? Yes. Yeah, were you intimidated that he was five billion times smarter than you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, yes, yes. In fact, yes. I spent probably more time prepping for that interview than any interview we've done so wow. far. Wow. I mean, I probably spent 10, 20 hours of research. And Dolby's kind of a badass-looking wow. dude, too. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like he, he came fully formed from Terry Gilliam's brain, doesn't he? He does. No, with the. I mean, yeah. that's a compliment. Like yeah. He's bald now, and he's got the aviator things when he's behind the... The big uh, stacks of synth and stuff. He's a cool-looking yeah. dude. Yeah, I hope I'm. I could. You know, you gotta have a hell of a skull to go bald. Would you ever shave it off, Chet? Well, probably not. No. If this happens, is as close as we get. The um, the DVD that he's selling right now on this tour, The Soul Inhabitant. It's it's really interesting because he does a one man show, and you think, well, why would you make a DVD of a live show if you're just doing a one man show? But it's fascinating. Yeah. He incorporates a lot of plasma screens behind him showing scenes from old videos and showing what he's doing and showing his equipment, which is just really unique in itself, really antiquated. He's, he's basically, he likes to junk old equipment and rebuild it into his own little synthesizers. Oh, wow. It's, it's amazing. I can't wait to see him live. But, uh, you know, I, I was know, watching. That's going to be cool. Are you going to put uh, plastic bags of rum in your pants <laughs> yeah. when you live? Please. You know, I'm pretty sure they sell alcohol at the State Theater, <laughs> do so they? I don't think you need to do that. Do you think he resents... Um, having to play She Blinded Me with Science 
You know, I, I thought he might when I talked to him, and you get and you listen to his answer saying, you know, it's not necessarily his favorite song. It's certainly one of his fuzziest songs. Um, fuzziest, yeah, fluffiest, not fuzziest. Well, you said fluffiest. Well, either way, but I I, I think he he reinvents it each time he plays it now, and so he's. I like that live yeah. album. It's a great album. I gave you my live. That sounds good, doesn't it? I thought it sounded great. Yeah, I think uh, I Live in a Suitcase is definitely one of the best songs. But I think uh, it's a good album. If, if you're kind of new to Dolby and you sort of like you know, some of the tunes you've heard, this is a good album to get because it, it really is his greatest hits. And he's sort of remastered. Not remastered them because for the most part they sound pretty true to the original. But they have a little bit of added energy. Hey, by that sound, it must be time for Name That 80s Tune, the weekly show where you name a piece of a song and the artist, and you win a prize. And uh, Do you just name the piece of the song? Yes. Or do you have to name the you whole song? You have to actually song? name the piece. Third line, fourth bar, <laughs> D minor. Jerk. Jeez. Oh, man. You're just jealous and sad because you know that Sean and I are going to team up and whoop your ass oh, in the World bring Series. Bring it on. We're all... We're, we're, Joining forces to, to battle in the World Series of Pop Culture. Yes. And, and, and Kathy, tell the people who one of your teammates is. One of my fellow teammates is former co-host of Stuck in the 80s, Gina Vivanetta. She's off her game. She's got no chance. How's Gina uh, doing these days? She's doing very well. Thanks. Yep. She's is she still good. carjacking? Is she still carjacking? Um, no, she gave that up. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. That's good. yeah. So best to wipe the record clean. So, yeah. But we're... Totally gonna wipe you. You can know. wipe, but you're not gonna. You're not gonna beat us. Oh, you see what I'm saying? Let's see if you even get there. Anyway, here bring we go. it on. Here was last week's uh, tune. Ah, kind of tricky, but the answer was uh, Culture Club Time. Oh, we had some other people th- think it was another tune, but nope. Nope. Three, so who are our winners? Three winners. Actually, Tony in Indianapolis was the first winner. So if there's, a, well, he'll get a prize. Although I think I've given him just about everything so far. But um, did Sarah Hall from Iowa? Did she call in? She wrote in because she really liked the porno four point five reference. We had. <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't. She didn't make a guess. Did on she the really? Show. Let's send her something anyway. We'll no. give her something. Let's keep her. Thank on our you, Sarah, side. for the special shout out to yeah. me as well. She likes me best. Sweet, <laughs> sweet Lou Greeley from St. Pete. Sweet Lou. Jennifer Reynolds from. Uh, Midwest City, Oklahoma. I don't know where that is in Oklahoma, but I'm guessing it's somewhere in the Midwest area. Anyway, here is this week's tune. That's very short, but I think I know it. You know it, don't you? I Kathy? know it. I know it. I know. Anyway, if you think know. you can name the song and the artist, email us at stuckinthe80s at tampabay.com and we'll let you know if you're a wiener. This is Mark Kennelly from Glendale Heights, Illinois, better known as Bass Note on the blog. As Thomas Dolby once sang, the earth can be any shape you want it to be. But no matter what shape it is, you can always be stuck in the 80s. At the tender age of three, I was hooked to a machine Just to keep my mouth from spouting junk you know Dolby's got some technology he's oh, not talking yeah. about. Oh, of course. But you can't talk about that stuff, you know? You know, you can still see a lot of his videos on YouTube. 
if you go back, people who don't, because I know they're no, you don't see them on MTV anymore. You don't see anything no. on MTV anymore. No, you don't see videos on MTV. That's but sure. uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are familiar with She Blinded Me with Science. That's a pretty well-known video. But if you really want to see his best work, try to see the ones for Airhead and Hyperactive. Oh, I love Hyperactive. Yeah. See, I consider Hyperactive a hit. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I consider you rope in the Pirate Twins, which we just played. Yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's probably my favorite Dolby Europa, song. Yeah, no, I like that song. I was, I was watching, I was looking at YouTube the other day, and while I was preparing for the interview, and I was watching all those videos, and you know how they have the user comments underneath yeah. the, mm-hmm. I was shocked by it. I mean, I'm not the only one who's, who's totally still in love with Thomas Dolby. No. Some of the comments I read, to- Thomas is a genius, simply perfect. Um, one person said that uh, called Europa the best song of the eighties. Oh wow! And uh, then and then the ladies are big fans of his too. Wow. Uh, one of them said that he was uh, her first monster crush ever. You know, I love the uh, that wow. woman in the she blinded me with science video. Miss yeah. Yakamoto. Yeah, I Aww. like her. Well, she was beautiful after all. She was. I did. That started my lifelong love of. I uh, oh, forget. <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, anyway, we'll be catching out. Uh, we'll be catching Thomas's show December seventeenth at the State Theater. Yes, and we'll be back next week with an all new uh, show for Stuck in the Eighties. And in the meantime, we remain here firmly stuck in the Eighties. Ciao. Stuck in the Eighties is produced by the St. Petersburg Times and TampaBay.com. The show is engineered by Dave Morrison. To read our blog, go to blogs.tampabay.com/eighties. Email us at stuckinthe80s at tampabay.com and remember to subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. I guess we're, I think I'm hearing about that in a few minutes. <laughs> that really picked up my burp, too. Okay. Yeah. This is like okay. That was really bad. That was. Ew. That I feel all dirty. Yeah. <laughs>